um, then I also would recommend that young uh, upcoming composers take time to study the music that's out there already. Find pieces that you really like by various composers and, and study them and see what makes them work well, uh, how they lie in the hand, how um, what kind of um, tricks they use to to make the music come to life and, and be interesting to not only practice, but to perform and, and listen to. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Dennis Alexander. Since his affiliation with Alfred Publishing Company in 1986, as a composer and clinician, Dennis Alexander has earned an international reputation as one of North America's most prolific and popular composers of educational piano music for students at all levels. Professor Alexander retired from his position at the University of Montana in May 1996, where he taught piano and piano pedagogy for 24 years. Over the years, numerous organizations and state associations have commissioned him to write compositions. Many of his compositions are included in the National Federation of Music Study Club's Festival Required List, and his music is being performed by students throughout the United States, Canada, South Africa, Australia, Asia, and Europe. He's also a co-author of an exciting and innovative piano method entitled Alfred's Premier Piano Course. In 2015, he was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy. Mr. Alexander's personal website, www.dennisalexander.com, has become a favorite with piano teachers and features recordings, videos, teaching tips, and more. Before we begin, one feature of this podcast that I've decided to start doing is helping other piano teachers promote their resources, as long as I look over them in detail myself and can vouch for their quality. If you've created something to help piano teachers and would like me to talk about it, feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com. For today, I'd like to let you know about Deborah Kroll's Tiny Tinkles Little Musician series. As I've discussed on this podcast in several interviews, preschoolers are full of creative, musical energy and curiosity, but they're often unresponsive to the types of teaching methods used on older elementary school students. I think Deborah is an example of someone who really gets it right with this age group. Her books introduce preschool piano students to basic musical concepts in a way that's systematic and pedagogically beneficial, but never at a level that would be overwhelming for these young students. The visuals are extremely high quality, colorful, creative, and engaging, which I found makes a huge difference with this age group. In addition to her Little Musician series, Deborah offers a ton of free resources on YouTube and Teachers Pay Teachers. She's created over a hundred pages of free worksheets, videos of songs, story readings, teaching videos, and much more. I even tested one of Deborah's videos out on one of my preschool students, and she loved it. Deborah also offers free mentoring, coaching, and training workshops for music teachers who are looking for more opportunities to learn about teaching music to babies, toddlers, and preschoolers. If you'd like to learn more about the Tiny Tinkles Little Musician series, you can visit www.tinytinkles.com, and you can watch her videos at Tiny Tinkles Music Studio on YouTube. Now on to the interview. I hope you enjoy. Dennis Alexander, thanks so much for joining today. My pleasure. It's so nice to be here, Ben. Thank you for inviting me. 
So today we're going to talk about your work as a composer and just also about writing piano music for children in general. So I'm very interested in kind of the connection for you between improvisation and composition. And I've seen you a lot in the past describe your childhood interest in improvisation as in some ways leading to your interest in composition later on. So you write in a very, very wide variety of styles for a wide range of levels of performers. So I'm interested, is improvisation for you a part of the composition process, basically essentially no matter what you're writing? Or are there certain styles where the way you tend to compose starts out a lot with improvisation and other styles where maybe the composition process isn't so much driven by improvisation? I would say that um, when I am writing certain styles of music, um, improvisation plays a much greater role in certain styles. For instance, uh, the romantic style is probably my favorite style just because it comes so naturally for me. I can, I can envision in my head exactly what I'm wanting to create without really improvising much of anything. So that, that you know, like when I was doing the books of Nocturnes, right. um, I, I really heard those pieces in my head. I formulated them pretty much just through my own imagination. But if I'm writing more contemporary pieces, um, or if I'm uh, impressionistic pieces, I really do go to the piano and and uh, improvise um, a lot, uh, trying to get sounds, um, certain harmonies, certain patterns in my in my hand that I think will feel good. And so improvisation plays a much bigger role in those particular styles um, in, my, in my own composition writing. That's interesting. And earlier in this interview, you said that you had a very big background in music theory, and that has, in many ways, uh, shaped your compositional work. So when you're writing in a style, let's say like the Nocturnes or a different style that are not principally improvisation-based, is music theory ever part of the kind of initial compositional impetus? Like, would you ever think from the get-go, okay, I want to modulate from E major to this, and like, like come up with a kind of music theory schema, or how much do you think about theory when you write? Sometimes that's okay. the case. Um, as you know, I mean, you've composed uh, music too. Yeah. And and um, it's, it's all uh, very often a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, sometimes I know exactly kind of what I want to do, but it um, for me, the compositional process uh, begins with either a melodic idea or a rhythmical idea. I get started, and then sometimes it takes off in a completely different direction. Right. Then I'm yeah, I experienced that too. Mm -hmm. And and um, so uh, it, it evolves measure by measure as you're as you're writing. Sometimes I I surprise myself. You know, with what comes out, um, either uh, uh, harmonically or with certain modulations, certain transitions, um, they just pop into my head at that moment, and it wasn't planned at all. Um, but I think that uh, if you're if you're a good composer, uh, if you're a good musician, you know what works mm -hmm. uh, harmonically, what makes sense, and so, so you try and work within that framework and then throw in surprises. I, I love music that has surprises. 
Yeah. Both rhythmically and harmonically. Mm -hmm. So no matter what level it might be, whether it's an elementary piece or a more advanced piece, I want students to feel those surprises uh, along the way so that uh, it's a what we call an aha moment. Yeah, so I'm really interested in how these surprises that you're describing occur writing pedagogical music. Um, so in a lot of the videos that I've seen of you, you talk about your pieces. I mean, you have a lot of videos uh, talking about your pieces, and I have really enjoyed watching them. And I'm interested in the fact that you discuss them both from a pedagogical perspective and a musical perspective, talking about some of those surprise moments, like what you were saying earlier. And so I'm interested in this idea of juggling kind of both worlds, like the fact that you want your pieces to be pedagogically beneficial for the student, but you also want them to be musically interesting. So when you're writing, do you ever experience a tug between those two worlds in the sense of maybe wanting the piece to be musically strong or create a surprise moment, but then you're worried that if you insert this surprise or do this musically interesting thing, that that will create a distraction from the kind of pedagogical intent of what you have and what you're trying to teach the student in the piece in question. Is that a thing that ever happens? And if so, how do you kind of deal with this tug? Again, I think that if you're a good musician uh, and if you have a really good knowledge of the instrument itself, what what feels good in the hand, what lies well in the hand, um, you can you can do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, uh, for instance, um, one of the first pieces I, I ever wrote was a little piece called um, Ballad. It was in the uh, level, the 1B Alfred's Basic mm -hmm. um, uh, duet book. It was a very, very popular little piece, a simple little tune. Um, and it had to be within a uh, five finger position, you know, a, a C major position. So, um, that, it, could I just play a little bit of the? Yeah, that, please. Um, it, it, it's a tune that, um, as I said, it's very, very simple, but uh, the, the melody itself goes on. So then it, that little melody repeats, but then in the middle section, we have, and I got to here, I really wanted to go up to A, which was out of my five finger position. Ah, yeah, that's so exactly the type of moment I'm describing. I, my, first, my first thought was, well, I can't do that because then, you know, we're spreading the hand out over a six. So then I, instead I just took the left hand over the oh, right okay. hand, okay, and it gave me that 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 note in the melody that I really wanted to have. And then um, when you put it all together with the um, with the accompaniment, you know, with the with the uh, teacher uh, secondo part, it all works so nicely. And it even um, I found later, well, I thought about it at the time, but by taking the left hand over, it also just gives a natural little tiny bit of, of a breathing space mm. uh, in that melodic leap, which makes it sound more musical um, uh, and, and very beautiful, rather than just 
going. Um, That's very metronomic. But then, yeah. It makes it sound much less choppy. But, um, but when you hear it with the teacher accompaniment, then it, it, it sounds like a really lovely, the nocturne-like piece, actually. Yeah. But it's at the very elementary, uh, early elementary level. So I want to stay on this idea of these early elementary pieces. I really admire how much variety you're able to get, even with some of the most elementary books, uh, particularly finger paintings, which I've used in my studio and really admire. Uh, many composers, including some who've been on this podcast, have said that they find beginning music to be some of the most challenging to write due to the limited set of options. Is that how you feel? And also on this idea of beginner pieces, what would you say in your head, differentiates good from great as far as music for beginners? Well, I think that uh, what I sometimes see in some beginning level pieces is a tendency to um, either have very static rhythms hmm. or, or, or have um, nothing but Things that that could be harmonized with one, four, and five. Yeah. I, yeah. I I get very bored with just you know one, four, and five. Mm -hmm. um, so I, um, for instance, um, there's a little piece that I wrote years and years ago. It's, a, it's always been a favorite uh, called Traffic Zoo, and it's in an, in C major. Uh, so it's it's an easy piece for for students to. Uh, to read for the most part. Um, but what I did in that little piece right off the bat was create a sound like, it goes like this. <laughs> you know, with um, little horn honks and, and hand crossings you know, to black keys. Um, again, surprises. Yeah. Um, and, and things that, that immediately um, awake a listener uh, to, to what's happening in the music. Uh, I could have easily had written that piece um, and just kept the hands in five finger patterns all the way through it. But um, I, I feel strongly that that students love those kinds of pieces um, where they're asked to do something different, either go up yeah. to the highest note on the keyboard or the lowest note of the keyboard or mm -hmm or cross one hand over the other and, and play um, strange and different sounds than what they might be used to in their method book. Right. And I think it could lead to so many fun opportunities in the lesson once the student has had the experience of playing those clashing seconds. I mean, I could think even in my head of so many lessons I could do with a piece like that. You could talk about dissonance versus consonant. You could do an improvisation exercise using seconds. You could talk about the connection between the title of Traffic Stop and the sound. I mean, there's so much opportunities for creativity in a way that you couldn't if you had just stuck to the one, four, and five chords, like you were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, in the... Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the finger paintings books. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't written that many early elementary mm -hmm. uh, things or, or even elementary. Um, well, I have quite a few elementary things, but early elementary is, is more difficult. But I just find that if you have 
um, a really interesting um, teacher accompaniment, or uh, could be for an older student mm -hmm. as well. Uh, it gives you a little more leeway uh, to create interesting, engaging sounds that not only the audience loves, but um, most importantly, the student. Uh, students only practice the pieces the most that they like. Of course. <laughs> if, if they don't, uh, if they're not charmed by a particular piece, they're not going to practice it very, very much. Um, there's a piece in the finger paintings book uh, that I like a lot uh, that's called Sad Warrior. Um, I don't know if you've ever taught that one or not, um, but it's, um, it's in a minor uh, mode and um, it has uh, a little motif that, that I think is so important to teach early on. Uh, it has repeated notes mm -hmm. and uh, there, are, there are three, uh, well the melody charts off like this. So it's that, that A, 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 uh, three-note motif. And if students learn in their first year of lessons to never play a repeated note the same way twice, yeah. uh -huh. they learn to shape mm -hmm. and, and to listen. So I, I try and write pieces that are, even at this level, that are musical, that, uh, that have some beautiful phrasing, that have some interesting articulations, and then, uh, and then uh, accompaniments that give them a, a real sense of style. In fact, um, I let me just play this little piece once. Could I for you? Um, sure. I've got it recorded with both uh, both the parts. So you can hear the, the you know the uh, the character of the piece. You know, can, you know, at this level, can be very very beautiful, um, depending on on the melody itself, depending on on uh, the phrasing, uh, depending on on the color of the harmonies. I have some interesting uh, augmented chords and and seventh chords uh, in this little piece that gives it the color. Right. It goes back to your earlier point about not wanting the harmonies to feel static. I think when I was listening to that, I mean, I don't know if there was any just basic triads. It was all kind of extended harmonies. And that does, I think, go to your point about wanting to write really substantive accompaniments. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the, um, the real challenge, though, in that, and we certainly uh, <laughs> worked very hard when we were writing the, uh, the premier, uh, Alfred Premier Piano Course, and all of those teacher accompaniments, they had to be written 
um, in a way that was very easy to sight read. Yeah. But because you know, some teachers read better than others. Um, uh, and I, I know for a fact that when I've gone out on the road to give workshops, if I ever ask a teacher to, to volunteer to play a, a couple of duets mm-hmm. with me, sometimes teachers are very eager to do this. Um, and other times, you know, they're very reluctant. Uh, sometimes you have to almost beg somebody <laughs> to, to get up and, and uh, play a duet with you. But I found out on more than one occasion that um, some teachers uh, are not such good sight readers. And yeah. so we, we know certainly from our experience that when, um, when we have these teacher duets in these lower levels, they need to be interesting and they need to be colorful but they need to be very easy yeah. to try to read. Yeah. So um, in, in, in writing those particular accompaniments, I know that our the pedagogy team um, uh, constantly worked with Martha Meir and I. Uh, we were writing out the music for the course, but they uh, sometimes felt that some of our accompaniments on the first draft was maybe too hard mm-hmm. or needed to be even easier and um, so that that was always a challenge. I read that uh, you and Martha Mir worked on those Alfred Premier courses for about 12 years, I think, and it took three years to just do the first book. Is partly why it took that length of time was because of the editing of the accompaniment parts? No. Uh, well, that might have been part of it. But um, when we started that particular course, First of all, we knew that it had to be first class. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of competition out there uh, in, in the world of piano methods, mm-hmm. uh, not the least of which was the, the old Alfred uh, method, which was still being used very, very, um, uh, very much, the Alfred's uh, basic. We wanted a completely different course from the Alfred's basic. Um, we wanted a totally non-position oriented course um and and we did lots of things uh in that series that were um very very different from the alfred's basic but because there were five of us involved uh actually six if you count morty manis because morty was uh at the time the president of alfred and and really wanted to have some input as well but we had three people on the pedagogy team that consisted of E.L. Lancaster, Vicki MacArthur, and, uh, and E.L.'s wife, Gail Kowalczyk. So they were the pedagogy team, and Martha Mier and I were the composers. So every time um, we would start a, a new level, we, Martha and I would be given a very rough draft of, um, let's say, it might just be a few pages at a time. And uh, that rough draft was created by the pedagogy team. We would be told to write a, for example, a, maybe a 12, 16 bar piece uh, that used this particular rhythmic pattern. Because, you know, we, we teach rhythm and patterns in this particular method. And Martha and I would be given the same assignment. We, we had no idea what the other person was writing. Uh, Martha lived in Florida and um, 
Ingrid Ibis, um, living in uh, California. So we had no idea what the other person was writing, and then we would send in our pieces to the pedagogy team. They would look at them. Sometimes they would love one or the other, or they would like both, or they didn't like either one of them. And they would tell us to start over because we need to do this. Or sometimes the pedagogy team would change their mind as to what they wanted to introduce on a certain page, which then meant we had to start all over and and write something brand new. Um, and then uh, sometimes all it takes is one person on the team who really uh, doesn't like or who's very, very particular about everything and uh, or, or just has a very different idea about what they would like at a certain point. That could stall things uh, and take longer. But of course, we were also uh, having students um, you know, as guinea pigs, essentially, to try the music on. And um, so if, if the piece worked really, really well with a particular student, we knew that would be a winner. And um, a particular piece might have certain uh, things that a student didn't like or whatever, so we would make alterations and then try it again. So it was a constant a back and forth uh, working with five or six people, uh, which is much more labor intensive than if only one or two people <laughs> are, are writing. It, it, uh, it was a very complicated process, but I think in the end, uh, I'm very glad that we had five or six sets of eyes always thinking and, and um, uh, engineering that particular method because um, in the end it came out to a very, very successful course and I'm, I'm so happy with the way it all turned out. But it was frustrating as a, as a composer because when you're writing for a method like this, it's a very different process than if you're just writing uh, purely for your own library. Um, you have to um, you have to please four or five other people who are who have very strong opinions on pedagogy and, and performance. So that was a challenge. Yeah, that's so interesting to have a separate team for the pedagogy and the composition. I don't know if you know if that's a common thing that method books do. Do do many method books have that sort of division of teams? Well, most method books have only one or two writers involved. Yeah, one might be primarily pedagogy, and both both of them might be pedagogy, and both of them could be composers too. Yeah, um, you know, so certain, uh, you know, you'll you'll see a little bit of everything in, in some of the method book uh, books that have been uh, successful. Some have been more successful than others. Mm -hmm. Staying yeah. on this idea of um, sort of pop your experience working with publishers and. Um, many of the sort of different routes you've gone down in terms of working with others versus doing more yourself. I'm sure we have a lot of listeners today who write their own pedagogical music for children and are sort of thinking about how to get their music out there. And one area that I know many of our listeners are probably thinking about is sort of the pros and cons versus going the route that you have as far as seeking out a publishing company versus self-publishing. So two kind of questions for those listeners. Number one, do you have any thoughts on 
self-publishing versus going through a publisher? And do you have any other advice for some of our listeners who are aspiring to write children's piano music? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, first of all, if you're aspiring to, to write for uh, children's music, uh, just know, first of all, it's a very competitive business, mm-hmm. uh, especially today. Uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of, of um, wonderful writers out there today. Um, I know Alfred uh, Music had uh, a large, large um, uh, list of, of very fine composers who had written for them over the years. I, I was lucky because I got in very, very early. Uh, when I started with Alfred in 1986, I was um, the only uh, composer they had at the time besides Palmer. Oh, I know that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, all of the other composers that joined Alfred later on, um, you know, were, were uh, that happened after I came on board. So I kind of got my foot in, into the door early at Alfred, um, but I was also very, very lucky that I had such um, wonderful colleagues there at Morty Manis and uh, Willard Palmer and, and Amanda Vick Lethko. Um, but today, um, I, I know a lot of young people are going the self-publishing route. Um, the real advantage of that is that um, you get a, a higher royalty if you're self-publishing. Um, but the disadvantage, of course, is that you have to do your own marketing. Right. And um, which today with social media, uh, uh, the way it is, and there's all kinds of, of opportunities that way to promote your music. Uh, very, very different than it was 25, 30 years ago. Uh, so I think it's very possible today for um, composers to uh, self-publish and be quite successful if they have a knack for marketing and, and uh, using the various social media platforms that are available. Um, I've even thought about it myself. Recently, um, I, uh, for example, uh, I've been wanting to, to do some collections or just one hand pieces. Um, uh, I know that they would not be big sellers uh, and most publishers are not interested in publishing one hand pieces. Well, I have to say, I have learned on the, the, the course of this podcast, there is a big market for pieces that are for one hand, explicitly for students who break an arm and need pieces oh, in the meantime so they don't have to quit. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And uh, constantly, uh, I've been asked so many times at workshops um, I, I've been doing workshops for 30 years uh, all over the world, and teachers constantly ask me, you know, um, you know, have you written anything for right hand alone or left hand alone because Johnny broke his arm playing soccer? I've had that situation with multiple of my students. Exactly. And I even have a, an adult student right now who injured his shoulder and, and arm um, splitting firewood recently, and couldn't practice um, you know, any of his pieces for two hands. So I, I started writing actually a few pieces for left hand alone. And um, I, I'm thinking about self-publishing those. Oh, 
um, because uh, simply because my my current publisher is Hal Leonard. Um, I don't know if you're aware that that Alfred uh, several months ago um, the the owners of Alfred dismantled the entire piano division um, at Alfred. Um, it's uh, so that unfortunately they'll there'll not be any new music ever coming out from Alfred. Uh, they'll continue to sell everything that we have written in the past, um, but uh, there'll be no more new music uh, publications, unfortunately. It, it's a very, uh, very troubling thing that happened to me, but um, uh, f- uh, lucky for me, I, I do have other publishers that are interested in my, in my music, and I published two new Christmas albums um, with uh, Neil Chose publishers in San Diego this last Christmas. Uh, but now I'm working uh, with Hal Leonard and um, am looking forward to uh, uh, doing several new collections with them. I have three in progress right now. And, um, but I mentioned uh, to them recently that I was interested in doing these hands alone collections and they, um, uh, told me that they they felt that there wouldn't be enough um, um, of a market mm-hmm. for them uh, to do. So now I'm I'm seriously considering doing those as um, self-published pieces. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's my plan at least. Right. So final question before we leave. So you mentioned kind of a lot of different avenues for yourself creating music between you used to do Alfred, now you do Hal Leonard, you might be considering self-publishing. So what would you recommend is the best way for our listeners to stay following your work? Well, um, check my website. Okay. Um, I, uh, I have a very extensive website, just DennisAlexander.com. Okay. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, uh, sadly, just uh, this, a few months ago, all of the recordings that I've had on on the website over the years, I've made I've, hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, Adobe Flash uh, oh, went out. I can see where this business. is going. Yes, uh-huh. and and all of my recordings were based on Adobe Flash. Oh. So uh, sadly, those recordings are now not available on the website, but the music is, okay. um, and uh, teachers can still see um, all of the covers and the PDFs of the music and um and reviews and there's lots of stuff on the website that is still accessible i'm i'm trying to figure out a way to get some of those recordings back uh but it's a, a complicated process uh much more complicated than i thought it would be but um certainly um teachers can can always contact me through my website um, I've, I've had a lot of teachers uh, in fact, and students write me uh, with various questions, um, either wanting to uh, have advice on pedagogy or on some of the music that I've written, uh, asking for suggestions for certain types of students so I can always be contacted that way. Um, but, uh, you know, you were asking me a minute ago about about young composers today. I, I, I really encourage aspiring composers to to write um, good pedagogical pieces. I think um, there's a certainly there's a market, um, there's a need for good pedagogical repertoire. 
um, I, I think that one of the things I would suggest to them would be to uh, study a, there's a very good book that Carol Closey wrote, uh, published by Hal Leonard. Um, and it's called uh, The Piano Teacher's Guide to Creative Composition. Um, the very, very fine book uh, that, that Carol wrote, um, and it really gives, I think, aspiring um, composers a lot of good advice. And, um, and then I also would recommend that young uh, upcoming composers take time to study the music that's out there already. Mm-hmm. Find pieces that you really like by various composers and, and study them and see what makes them work well, uh, how they lie in the hand, how um, what kind of um, tricks they use to to make the music come to life and, and be interesting to not only practice, but to perform and, and listen to. Right, well, fantastic advice, and I'll definitely link to that book that you mentioned in the show notes as well. Uh, Dennis Alexander, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I really regard you as a huge source of inspiration, and I love using your works in my studio, and really am happy that you came on the podcast today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate being here. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for tuning into All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.